You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from the Encore series, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. Part 2 of Preventing Death by Suicide concludes with discussions about selecting the right leader for a program, disseminating that program regionally, and navigating confidentiality to protect law enforcement professionals, followed by a Q&A. In case you missed part one of this discussion, this program is about narrowing down on the key building blocks and organizational structures used to build a successful wellness program to help prevent death by suicides within the law enforcement profession. The discussion features chiefs of police and peer support specialists from across the country to combine their many resources and best practices into one program. With National Police Week 2023 quickly approaching, Precinct 444 thought it would be appropriate to honor these fallen officers from years past who took their own lives. And now for part two of Preventing Death by Suicide, a chief-to-chief leadership wellness discussion. Next, we're going to move to uh, selecting uh, the right right leader uh, for your wellness program. And to help us with that is uh, District of Columbia Chief uh, Peter Newsham and his staff. So uh, Chief, it's all yours. Well, I want to thank uh, Marsha and the National Law Enforcement Officer from Memorial Museum for hosting this uh, really important event. Uh, and I really want to thank you for keeping this critical issue uh, out there and people thinking about officer wellness. I know you played a big role uh, in the PERF report that came out just about a year ago. Uh, but you have really served in a leadership position for all of us, and I want to personally thank you for that. Um, you know you know what they say, and I, and I heard this from a couple of the speakers earlier, that if we are going to reform policing in America and in our cities across this country, um, we need to ensure that we have a workforce that is, that is well, uh, that they're physically well, and that, of course, that they're mentally well, because you know what they say, about hurt people, uh, they hurt people. We can't have a workforce uh, in this environment that is out there uh, hurting people. So, you know, how did I select uh, somebody uh, to run our wellness program? First, uh, I took the advice from the PERF report, uh, understanding that this was gonna be a culture change. Uh, and I selected someone uh, that was a direct report of mine, uh, one of our executive directors, Ben Hayman. Uh, and I selected him because he was a person who I trusted uh, would not only uh, collaborate uh, with the mental health professionals, but also collaborate within the, within the agency so that you could have buy-in uh, from the folks who were going to use this program. You know, we need to, we need to really, this stigma that uh, it surrounds uh, people looking for help uh, who have mental health issues really has to be eradicated. Uh, and we've been living with it in policing from the very beginning of time. So you need somebody who is, when you're a police chief uh, and you're dealing with all of the things we deal with, when you're dealing with crime, when you're dealing with civil unrest, you're dealing with police reform, you're dealing with politicians and government officials, you need somebody who's a direct report that's constantly reminding you of the importance of officer wellness uh, for us to be successful in policing. So three of the programs uh, that Ben has been very successful in developing for us, uh, we have a mandatory policing for resilience training for all of our officers. 
Uh, it's called the Neuropsychology of Emotional Wellness in Law Enforcement. Uh, we've also created a sergeant leadership and peer support team. So because we all know that the peer support can oftentimes be more effective than the support that's coming from the leaders. And then we've also developed a, a, a free elective courses uh, that are given at our training academy, uh, whereby officers can pick from a, a list, a menu of, of items where they can receive training uh, from our folks at the academy. So I'm going to let Ben uh, chime in and talk a little bit more about those in detail. Thank you, Chief, and it's a pleasure to be here with everyone today. Uh, so as we looked at our different programs and really our philosophy around wellness programs, uh, we convened a very diverse panel of experts, both within the agency and throughout the city. What we found through doing that process is there were a lot more resources than initially we might have come up with by really pulling everyone to the table. And so before the pandemic, uh, we had everyone literally around a table, uh, not only from within the agency and officers and, and civilian staff members that were very passionate about wellness services, whether that was our athletic trainer who is uh, dedicated to working with, with officers and civilian members actually at our academy to our city's uh, nutrition coordinator and other services. And so really convening that panel of kind of experts, what we found is we could connect a lot of the different services uh, to really reach and, and, and give kind of a more wraparound approach uh, to what our officers needed. That brought in the idea as a part of our professional development training uh, to build out a, a course, as the chief mentioned, called the Neuropsychology of Emotional Wellness for Law Enforcement, uh, leveraging Dr. Beverly Anderson and the Metropolitan Police Employee Assistance Program, which has been working with our uh, employees for well over three decades now. Uh, we developed a five-part series that really looks and focuses on officer resilience. Uh, the first piece of that course uh, educates officers about the stress response. What is it? What is officer resiliency? And really introducing kind of key terms uh, that are relevant in the conversation. And part of this and making it a part of a mandatory professional development course is building that baseline of knowledge uh, and building that conversation and that openness to talking about uh, emotional wellness. Uh, we then continue in uh, and really dive into some of the science around the evolution of the brain, uh, human brain to include memory and the importance and the impact of uh, traumatic events on the brain. Uh, further in the course, we talked about unpredictability and stress within the law enforcement profession uh, and managing the work-life balance. Uh, as we get into the fourth part of the series, we dive into a term called police trauma syndrome and really to kind of give a concrete association. While many people associate holidays with pleasant uh, thoughts and memories, officers who respond to calls for service, in particular violent calls for service on these days that everyone else holds as, as you know, really a celebratory event, have these memories associated with bad things that happen. It's so really introducing that conversation about what is trauma. In the fifth part and, and kind of the longest part, we talk about self-soothing behaviors, both things that are positive and negative. Uh, in earlier in the, the, the session here today, uh, we heard statistics about you know, the, 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 the ills that can happen in the policing profession, alcohol abuse, uh, and, and all sorts of other pieces. And we really talked 
um, from a neuroscience perspective in this course. Uh, at a high level, our sergeant leadership course, we realize that, that those most impactful to the officers are those frontline supervisors. And while we can sit uh, at, at headquarters and try to roll out kind of a broad plan for the agency, those frontline supervisors know their people best. They know when burnout and compassion fatigue are occurring. And we, we try to give the skills and resources to our frontline supervisors uh, so that they can really intervene and, and, and help uh, our officers. And finally, those wraparound courses, we've tried to be creative uh, and pull in and, and a lot of uh, free community resources as well from yoga uh, to you know, other type wellness programs that we offer voluntarily uh, now in a hybrid uh, in-person and uh, virtual format. Uh, but uh, we, we try to provide those services to really benefit uh, our people. Well, thank you to our partners from the District of Columbia. And uh, next, Superintendent Martin Bruce uh, from Vancouver will share with us uh, the regional uh, approaches to sharing uh, your wellness programs with other agencies. And this is of particular interest to uh, medium to smaller size law enforcement agencies uh, that don't have the capacity and or the budget and uh, how you could successfully uh, create wellness in your region. Uh, Superintendent Bruce, it's all yours. Thank you very much. And I really uh, appreciate the opportunity uh, to join you folks today and add a bit of a Canadian flavor to the, uh, the conversation. And I bring greetings from Chief Adam Palmer and the men and women of the Vancouver Police Department here in British Columbia. So my topic, as I mentioned, is discussing uh, par partnerships among regional agencies and, and leveraging those resources. And in, in doing so, you'll hear uh, how we at the VPD leverage relationships and develop programs, not only with um, other police departments, but with uh, our police union, medical professionals, and nonprofit groups that are dedicated to uh, really assisting police officers and other first responders uh, and, and veterans and help them build mental health resiliency and, and, and suicide prevention. So um, I'm going to run through some of the initiatives that we have and who we've partnered with. Um, so the, it may sound like a bit of a course listing, but uh, the key point to focus on is uh, who we have partnered with in, in developing the program. So we have a brand new trauma resiliency uh, training course that we've developed uh, in collaboration with uh, an organization called Wounded Warriors Canada. Uh, they're a national health service provider um, committed to supporting veterans and first responders. And that program is also uh, in collaboration with the University of British Columbia, Victoria uh, in British Columbia. They're uh, interested in uh, studying uh, police psychology and, and uh, police resilience, just uh, based in the context of, of modern policing. So that program, uh, we're just rolling that out. Um, it will go into the police academy, courtesy of the, the instructors that uh, will be providing the academy. So just as mentioned uh, by other uh, panelists, it's, this is very much a hire to retire uh, type program to build resiliency in members. Uh, reactionary things are, are great, but uh, we're firm believers and you need to get into the academy, get them peer support right there, get them training right there. And, uh, and start off that, that hire to retire uh, criterion. Uh, another resiliency uh, and policing program um, that we're building uh, is in collaboration between, again, the police union, our police foundation, and uh, WorkSafe, likely better to know you folks as uh, workers' compensation. 
not utilizes research uh, psychologists uh, who lead a four-day program off-site in a rural setting and sort of uh, gets our members uh, out of police buildings and being able to talk about um, issues. Uh, we have two um, equine uh, therapy programs that are uh, on ranches, again, in the interior of our province here. One, again, is with Wounded Warriors Canada. The other one is with uh, an organization called Can Praxis, and it's privately funded. And uh, both these programs are open to first responders who have PTSD or some other form of occupational um, uh, stress injury. Um, we uh, coupled with uh, the federal department uh, called the Canadian Institute for Public Safety and Research. And uh, the purpose of that was to roll out a program called uh, R2MR. Some of you may be familiar with that. It was initially uh, developed by, for the um, Canadian uh, Department of National Defence. And uh, that focuses on, um, you know, uh, changing uh, again at the early part of a member's career, getting them used to identifying stressors and uh, addressing them um, in those early stages. Um, for families, uh, previous panelists have spoken about the, you know, the impact on families of being the, the uh, you know, having a, a sworn member as a, as a spouse. And so we've partnered for, with the Vancouver chapter of uh, Beyond the Blue. And those folks are um, sort of peer-led families of first responders. Uh, I'm sure you have uh, similar organizations in the, uh, in the US, but uh, it's one of those other um, programs that we're able to, uh, able to roll out in a partnership. We also have a, are partnering with a society called the Honor House Society. They basically provide a, uh, a residence here in the lower mainland of uh, British Columbia, Vancouver area. It's obviously very expensive and that helps folks that are uh, coming into the area and perhaps have to have a stay in hospital. Their families can uh, rest up there. Uh, working with other agencies in the in the region here, we do have uh, 20 plus police members uh, that are on a committee that's uh, focused on a unified approach to returning to work after a critical incident. And uh, that's obviously from the psychological perspective. Um, as we've heard, members are benched for a, a certain period of time and then we expect them to roll back into the agency. So uh, there's a, a structured process for doing that and that committee, they all learn from each other on what best best practices are um, in, uh, in that realm. Um, we also have a, um, a University of British Columbia, we're partnering with them in the Vancouver Police Union. Um, they're doing a, a workplace survey to uh, ascertain what the impacts are of uh, police oversight. We have uh, two different levels of civilian oversight on police here in British Columbia. So they're actually surveying the members on the stresses that are involved in, in that kind of environment uh, when a member's faced with uh, disciplinary action or perhaps uh, criminal charges and the importance, uh, certainly from my perspective in that realm of having a very close relationship between human resources and uh, professional standards as we would call them or your internal affairs on specific uh, key moments in an investigation where a member is gonna need additional um, supports. Uh, we also have a linkage between our regional uh, CISM, uh, Critical Incident Stress Management folks, um, 12 members of that committee, again, 
discuss best practices and um, you know leverage leveraging the, uh, the best challenges, successes, and responding to those critical incidents and supporting members um, through them. Um, so, uh, in, in summary, we will um, recognizing the limitations of our own funding. Um, for initiatives of which we, we have around 20. Um, there, there's great opportunity in leveraging with um, other uh, non-police agencies, uh, some of which are panelists here today. Um, great benefit in that. And I think it, it takes a combined effort of all the resources available, uh, not just between police departments, but nonprofits and the private sector universities um, to get as much uh, help in this area as we possibly can. Um, that was quite a lot in, in a few minutes. I don't want to belabor, but uh, can certainly uh, answer any questions uh, in the appropriate segment. Well, thank you, uh, Superintendent Bruce. I really appreciate that. And uh, next, we're going to uh, turn to Boston, Sergeant Joe King. Uh, we're going to talk about navigating uh, confidentiality, disciplinary uh, processes, and outreach uh, in, in wellness uh, to understand the firewall that we must have uh, and how to successfully navigate that. Sergeant, all yours. Thank you for having us off. The, the Commissioner Gross is, is appreciative that the department was invited. And, and in these matters, I'm awfully, often asked to, to speak and represent the department. The biggest issue we have, I think, in, in, in getting two officers is ensuring their confidentiality when they're working with us and through our peer support unit. Um, we have a somewhat of a bifurcated structure that is set up within the department through the peer support where we're, I, I, even though I, my, my, myself and my team and my personnel fall underneath directly underneath the commissioner, we, we almost live in a world of don't ask, don't tell with the commissioner's office. And it also helps insulate us from other command structures and issues that are going on that might have questions as to what's going on with a certain, a certain officer. So our biggest issue is ensuring the officers that when they come to us, whatever they speak to us about is gonna be held in the highest and utmost confidentiality. That being said that um, a lot of these officers are coming in as we sit here navigating the disciplinary process, usually because I like to say uh, they're in the soup or their pants are on fire. Or by the time they end up with us, you know, we're getting, um, we've been around for a long time and a lot of our supervisors are very good. We're getting the heads up from a supervisor. Hey, could you, could you reach out to this person? Could you look at this person? I don't, I don't want to know what's going on, but um, we, we think there's, there's something happening. They're getting into trouble. They're, they're calling in sick. There, there's been issues, uh, rumors, things of that nature. So we try to proactively reach out that way and, and, and head people off before they get too far down the road of the disciplinary process and before they become too much of a liability for the department in and of itself, which is unfortunately how a lot of these officers do come on our radar. It's in, it's a hidden, they're, they're, their pain is hidden and it's usually based out of shame and fear for, for job security is the reality. So our, our biggest thing is ensuring them that we are not a fit for duty um, environment when they come to spec to us, they're not gonna be evaluated for fit for duty. They're going to be offered confidentiality in, in a secure place to um, find help. Now, like we said, with the disciplinary process, a lot of these officers, and I, I like what the chief uh, Russell had said earlier, to regardless of the outcome of what the disciplinary process is for these officers. And I think that's a, a, an important note that they know that regardless what happens with them with the department, whether they're suspended or haven't forbid fired or whatever the case may be, that we are not gonna be walking away from them. 
as a department and on a whole. They will still be able to use our services, reach out to us and, and still be received by us. And I think that's the, the biggest reinforcement of the confidentiality to the officers. The, the biggest fear most officers I find have is, is um, being taken offline. You know, the, the irony of a police officer is they love to complain about the job, but they wouldn't leave it in 30 seconds. It's, it's, it's just one of those things. And they don't, they don't want to be revealed, but they want the help and they just don't know a lot about it. So what we do is we have our peer-led, peer um, like I said earlier, um, clinician supported. So when we're able to get officers into um, counseling and therapy, and it's through, a, um, through contracted uh, clinicians that we have access, exclusive access to that specialize in dealing just with police officers and first responders. It's proven to be a, a very good tool, and what's what's happened is, for a lot of the, for a lot of the supervisors now, they're able to call us and ask us to help them with 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 troubled officers before before we get too far down the road. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that was said in here is, is resiliency, and um, and I'll leave it with this: our SISM team members, our, our volunteer our officers who are volunteers at work. They report to us once a month for monthly training. They're all assigned to the different districts and stations throughout the city. And they're the eyes and ears of what we do. And, and, and they're the ones who watch out for the signs, the symptoms that were discussed earlier in this program. So like I said, the, the biggest thing is that the management understands that we can't tell them everything, but we're not going to also um, be without, uh, how should I say, it? without reason and leave them out of the loop but they are whatever they do is they do within the discipline and whatever we do for recovery we do with recovery and we keep those things separate resiliency is our primary mission not fit for duty and i think if those are understood we're usually on good grounds and we get a lot of we're able to get a lot a lot of work done a lot of officers in and work and staying working thank you thank you very much uh, sergeant king uh next we're going to go into our uh, question and answers uh, we've uh, collected a, a bunch online, so I'll start with those. Uh, the first one is, can civilian volunteers help officers that are having issues with their work? And what I'd like to do is uh, turn to Josh from Boulder Crest Foundation uh, to talk about how, uh, as a not-for-profit, they could help. You know, I think that, and I, I come at this as a civilian, right? I'm neither a first responder nor a law enforcement person. And I, I mean, I, I just, it's, it's a very foreign world from the world I came in. And I think one of the things um, that that perspective offers me, if I'm willing to listen, right, is to actually have a unfettered understanding of what's happening. So I'm not a mental health professional or any of these things. And so it forces me to be humble and simply to listen. And I think one of the things uh, we've consistently heard from both law enforcement and first responders and from the military community is, is they feel as though um, engaging and interacting with the traditional mental health system often leads them with the sense that the rest of their life is going to be a fraction of what it used to be. That basically, if you go through enough difficult stuff, your life is essentially doomed. And that's a recipe for hopelessness and suicide. And I think that, that there are um, opportunities for lots of people, I think, to be part of the solution, if you will, and I think it's super important for us to understand and for like for me to understand is there is something about having a first responder with a first responder, someone like Bernie, who's been there and done it um, and a veteran with a veteran that 
fast forwards a conversation to like the eighth chapter of the book as opposed to starting at the very beginning. And so I think that certainly all of us have an opportunity to play a role. Uh, and I think it's, it's essential to realize that there is something, and I know it's been talked about earlier, it's just, just there's something about healthy trained peers, right? Not just peers, but healthy trained peers who understand it. And I think the other piece that for me is in all of the stuff I've heard, I think to add in this notion of post-traumatic growth is to suggest that your life is not on some downward trajectory, but that you can in fact grow from all the experiences you've been through injects hope. And again, that is the antidote to suicide is hope, is the belief that tomorrow could be better than yesterday. Thank you, Josh. Uh, the next question, do you think it is important that young recruits get exposure to what critical care is like and destigmatize um, mental health while in the academy? And I'll turn to our friends from the Los Angeles Police Department. Uh, they hit on this a little bit uh, during their discussion, and uh, I'll let them expand on this question. Uh, thank you. Uh, absolutely. I think that that is actually where we help normalize from the beginning that you can both uh, handle the, the rigors of this job, but also have access to an emotional range. Uh, we always say that you can have any emotion in law enforcement, you just have to channel it through mission, vision, and values. And so we have a framework for, for talking about that very early on in the academy, but we also facilitate really um, deeper discussions on race, on disparity, on equity, on violence, uh, all those things, and how they uh, historically have impacted uh, communities of color in, in a different way. And so uh, that often brings up a lot of emotion. And what we have to really do is train our officers and our trainers to facilitate that emotion and not tell people to shove it down, to bring it up, recognize it, acknowledge it. And then what do we do with that? Because that is a very normal uh, human response. And uh, I, I think if we start training that way in the academy more, uh, normalizing those exposures and, and responses, um, it's going to help them in the long run. Thank you. Uh, another question is what resources are available to surviving uh, members uh, of law enforcement that have uh, unfortunately used death uh, by suicide as their exit from, from this life? And uh, I'm going to turn to uh, Lieutenant Carson. Uh, because he's uh, had a wealth of experience, unfortunately, uh, with this issue, uh, especially dealing uh, with the Department of Justice and other resources. So, uh, Jay, if you could discuss the resources uh, for aftercare for our, our fallen families. Yes, sir. So, um, obviously, in, in, in the Ferris County Police Department, we offer full services to our family members of our officers, sworn and retired um, you know, like I said earlier, unfortunately, we've dealt with um, some suicides in our agency and we provide we, we try to provide the best services we can. We do have on staff clinicians that we provide the families, but we also try to provide long term care in a sense that our clinicians will will reach out to uh, uh, other clinicians who can take care of uh, take care of these family members for the long run. Uh, Blue Help is another uh, program out there. Uh, and, and, and working with Blue Help, they are starting to run camps for the kids now of officers that have died by suicide as well as spouses. And we, I found that having a close relationship with them has been tremendous for us and being able to provide that. You know, and, and, and to talk about Boulder Crest as well, you know, uh, both uh, Chief Rosser and I have both been to the Boulder Crest program and I, could, I can speak nothing but great, uh, great things for them. They do a, a phenomenal job. 
And I would think that anybody who's been in law enforcement for a number of years uh, should go through their program. Uh, you know, post-traumatic growth has changed the way you look at things uh, through a different lens. And it's very, uh, uh, just a great program. And I'm going to give those guys all the props I can. I would, I would recommend any, any public safety official going through their program. And I'll also add uh, that the Badge of Life, uh, I sit on the board of directors uh, uh, representing the major city chiefs, uh, Dr. Marla Friedman, who may be on this call, um, also is another uh, not-for-profit resource that could help uh, uh, respond and, and rebuild. Uh, no more broken cops is, is their motto. Uh, the, the next question um, is about retirees. And um, Sergeant King hit on that a little bit, and we talked about uh, the concept, uh, which I call no blood on your hands. Uh, uh, Sergeant King talked about navigating people through the disciplinary process, no matter what the outcome is, but then taking care of our own uh, till, till uh, their uh, last day on this earth. And hopefully it's a healthy last day, uh, normal uh, process. But how do you take care of retirees and outreach? And, and I know Sergeant King does that well. Thank you. Um, one, of the, one of the biggest things um, I could start just with our CISM team. Like I said, there are officers, there are volunteers out in the districts, but we have a lot of our retired officers come back and stay on the CISM team. They help us do the briefings. They help us do diffusings. They actively participate in what's going on. We have good partnerships with different, um, I want to say philanthropic organizations and retired police organizations that we keep in contact with. One of the one of the biggest services we do, and unfortunately, it is well, two things. When officers are leaving, I have a I have a detective, and she she her one of her main tasks is to to work with officers and prep them for retirement, even if it's just a simple walking them through the logistics of city hall and how to get their paperwork done. What that does is open up a conversation, but what's, what's, what's underlying the logistics and the emotions and this adjustment of giving up a job that for a lot of people, this has been a major part of their life and identity being police officers. It's not working at the bank. It's, it is different. And, and so it's a major, major thing for a lot of officers, especially if they're going out at mandatory age, it's a crisis in and of itself. If you can recognize it, that it is a crisis, a change of life and look at it and help and talk to them in that manner, it helps them make that transition smoother. And we're not getting the phone call six months later from the spouse that he's been unfortunately drunk for three days and they can't, they don't know what to do with him because he doesn't know what to do with himself. I mean, those are the realities of what we get for the phone calls. And lastly, part of my peer support unit, I have another one that's called the family support unit that falls under our, our structure and, and um, for end of life services, they, they, um, we have announcements that go out daily in the department email for, for retired officers that have passed. And we ensure through my family support people that funeral arrangements are taken care of, the proper honors are given to them and their family when they do leave. Because a lot of these folks, it might be 10, 10 years later, and just to let the families know that they're gone, but not forgotten. So that's, those are some of the things we do. Thank you. And I know in my experience um, over the many decades, I've learned uh, from peer support members at all different ranks uh, to take care of our retirees. And uh, it's a blessing uh, to share with many on this call uh, that have helped me over the years. Uh, we train our retirees to be part of the peer support team. Um, and we have retirees all over the nation uh, and we network with other agencies, especially those that are on here. 
so if someone's in crisis several states over, uh, we know who to call and, and share that police uh, family outreach. But one of the next questions is, does a police department have to have a minimum size to be able to uh, have their own trauma staff or do smaller departments need to be part of a network uh, to, to uh, afford 24 seven coverage? Uh, and I'll turn to uh, Chief Newsham uh, because this is something I learned uh, from the DC Police Department uh, well over 14 years ago, uh, when you do have that traumatic event in your agency, no matter what size it is, uh, how you share those resources. So uh, Chief Newsham. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Ed. And I think that uh, you know, the larger organizations are obviously gonna be able to put more resources to a program like that. But I have yet to come across uh, as a member of major city chiefs, uh, a, a large police organization that that's not willing to assist. Uh, and that's the posture I've tried to, to, to keep here at MPD. Uh, if there are smaller agencies in the region, 100% uh, uh, we're willing to help them. Uh, I cannot tell you how much I've learned just listening to some of the suggestions that have been presented uh, on the program here today. So uh, we, the way that I look at it is we get just as much from the smaller agencies, and I think we, we owe them to be able to assist them uh, with some of the resources that we have if that's needed. Thank you, Chief. Um, another question uh, centers around uh, support of uh, programs and having access to software programs um, and uh, getting uh, the masses uh, to envelop this, uh, breaking down the stigma. So I, I know uh, Superintendent Bruce talked about this a little bit. So maybe uh, Superintendent, if you could uh, explore with us a, a little bit more um, how those resources are going, especially with the, the new generation of uh, recruits. Yeah, that's a very good, uh, very good question indeed. Um, obviously, the younger folks are much more uh, technically minded. Um, what we've, we've learned a lot about this from our, our police union and their national conversations uh, between those groups on uh, different apps that are available that um, younger folks will um, connect with. Um, that's everything from uh, mental health resources to things like mindfulness. Um, there, there's a range of them out there. Um, it's like everything else. Uh, once you go looking for it, there's not one or there's not two, but there's 10 or 20 or 30 of these things. And then which is going to be the uh, uh, the most appropriate uh, for your, your agency, but it is a cost-effective method. Um, and certainly uh, you need to be speaking to the right people and speaking to the young folks themselves. If you're going to pilot one, uh, to get them to have a look at it and see, uh, see what their thoughts are on it. But th there's definitely opportunities there. Thank you, Superintendent. Another question is, uh, there are other uh, titles for law enforcement, such as uh, parole agents, probation officers, uh, there's also obviously a public safety family. There's uh, firefighters and paramedics. And um, are they situationally uh, covered in, in the concepts that we're talking about? And, and this gets back to sharing resources. Um, I know there's lots of great models uh, across this country, uh, but to think of it as a public safety family. Uh, I'll again turn to um, Lieutenant Carson. Um, he's uh, produced... Uh, in his tenure, uh, two interactive videos for uh, the Northern Virginia uh, National Capital Region 
of uh, public safety family members uh, explaining um, their uh, loved ones who have uh, died a death by suicide and also their struggle with uh, attempts of death by suicide and also um, another uh, video that just came out on alcoholism. Uh, but Jay, if you could uh, share how, um, you know, best practice the, the partner with other public safety agencies. Uh, whether or not they are considered part of public safety. We did include them as part of public safety in this next survey. We've reached out to all aspects of public safety on the local and federal side. Uh, I think we're gonna be able to uh, also, you know, we, we touched on, uh, you know, we're asking a lot of questions about veteran experience, but we're also asking questions about EMTs, firefighters, paramedics. We understand some EMTs, they don't do, they have separate roles, but we're also looking at corrections officers as well and those who serve in uh, probation and parole. Uh, all those questions are asked in that survey. So we're hoping to capture all that so that really gives us some good detailed information across the country, uh, what the mental health of our first responders looks like. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. Um, and uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, in regards to the survey and all of us in public safety that you know, this, this survey is going to help us advocate for the benefits and the programs that we need throughout our country, especially now after COVID and after the political climate that's out there right now and how uh, police officers feel villainized. So um, I hope that answers that question, but we are looking at that. We do want to include them in public safety. Okay. The, the, the next question uh, centers around uh, practitioner support to, to leadership, especially in the COVID crisis, civil unrest and police reforms. And I'll, I'll turn back over to uh, Mr. Hyman from uh, DC uh, to talk about uh, how those services are, are provided to sustain leadership and, and uh, with all these challenges with uh, uh, today's world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, everything in 2020 has been uh, different than usual. Uh, you know, I think for us, uh, one of the things that, that, that our team has had to do is fairly quickly uh, figure out how to best reach people in a way that follows all CDC guidelines, uh, is, is recognizes the fact that the majority of our workforce is still in person, uh, but a lot of our programs and our traditional ways of providing information and services uh, wouldn't uh, fall within uh, the guidelines of, uh, of the CDC. And so, you know, we've pivoted a lot of our programs uh, uh, to virtual. Uh, for example, our, our neuroscience program that I mentioned when I first spoke, uh, we actually broke it into smaller segments that officers can watch in the field uh, as a kind of a virtual video and engagement with the follow-up opportunity to come and speak uh, either on the phone or in person with, with our Metropolitan Police police employee assistance program staff. Uh, as we look forward uh, into the future, uh, we're continuing to look at our wellness programs through the lens of, you know, how can we do this as safely with the ongoing public health emergency? Uh, for some of our wellness programs, we've leveraged technology. Uh, all of our recruits uh, in our academy are training, their physical training is done virtually, but it actually works seamless. The instructors monitor their running, uh, on, uh, uh, you know, on a health app in order to see kind of their progress. They participate in group workouts virtually. So we've been able to adapt uh, with very or low or no cost technology uh, into a virtual medium, which frankly reaches uh, some of our, our employees even uh, better than, than an in-person format might have. And it allows us a greater audience too. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for questions. And now it's my honor uh, for our keynote uh, speaker to uh, close us out. It's Representative uh, Abigail Spanberger. Um, Representative Spanberger represents the 7th Congressional District of Virginia, which is comprised of 10 counties uh, throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. Uh, she began a career in public service, first serving as a federal agent with the U.S. Postal Inspection, investigating money laundering and narcotic cases, and then serving as a case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency, otherwise known as the CIA. Uh, in the House, uh, Representative Spanberger uh, serves the U.S. House Committee on Agriculture and the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs. Uh, thank you, Representative, uh, for being with us today and uh, appreciate uh, listening to you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank, begin by thanking the National Law Enforcement Memorial and Museum for the opportunity to be a part of today's discussion on a very important and too often overlooked issue, the mental health and wellness of our nation's police professionals. I appreciate the opportunity to be here with you all today virtually, and I am thankful to be included along a slate of amazing speakers and experts on these issues. Uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to listen to some of the questions and answers and hear the fantastic things that are happening across our communities uh, in response to some of the biggest challenges that you all fa are facing in your departments nationwide. While I do wish that we could be meeting in person, I am nevertheless humbled to speak with you today. You are leaders who embody our country's proud tradition of service. Your mission to keep our communities and our citizens safe is an important one, and it's one of our most fundamental responsibilities as a nation. I'd like to say thank you to all the law enforcement officers on the call today. Thank you for your service and thank you for your sacrifice. I'd also like to thank your families for their sacrifice and for their understanding that your work and your commitment to our communities across the country uh, is part of who you are. I am the daughter of a career law enforcement officer, and I know what it is to have a loved one, or in my case, a parent, who works odd hours, faces unique stresses, and who lives by a code of service to others. Having been a law enforcement officer briefly with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service, I am grateful to those who dedicate their careers to public service and keeping our communities safe and secure. And as a representative for Virginia's 7th Congressional District, I have had the privilege of meeting many of the amazing officers across Central Virginia who have answered the call to serve our communities. And I'm grateful to the chiefs of police and the sheriffs across the 10 counties I represent who have shared with me the experiences, the challenges, and the concerns that are impacting their officers. I'm grateful for the chance to learn from you all today as you answer questions, share your experiences, and continue to advocate for your officers and for the greater public safety family. On Capitol Hill, I believe it is my responsibility, the responsibility of all members of Congress, to provide law enforcement officers serving our country with the support and the resources they need to fulfill their duties responsibly, professionally, and safely. And I've taken action on this belief with my colleagues by supporting initiatives to improve the safety of law enforcement officers across our country and advocate for justice for those whose families have lost a loved one in the line of duty. In Congress, we've authorized the Bulletproof Vest Partnership Grant Program, and it was recently signed into law. And along with many of my colleagues, I'm a supporter of the First Responders Survivor Support Act, which would support the families of fallen first responders, law enforcement officers, and firefighters killed in the line of duty by increasing death benefits for families. And most recently, I backed the Jaime Zapata and Victor Avila 
Federal Law Enforcement Protection Act, which would ensure that individuals who do harm or attempt to harm U.S. federal law enforcement officers serving abroad can be brought to justice and prosecuted in the United States. These are basic steps that we can take to show that we have the backs of our law enforcement, but protecting the physical safety of law enforcement officers is not only is not the only step we should take. According to Blue Help, there have been 869 officer suicides since 2016. And in 2019, the group calculated that the officer suicide rate is 22.4 per 100,000 officers. This is serious, it is tragic, and it is unacceptable. We cannot ignore these numbers. And I'm so grateful for the work that you all are doing to speak frankly uh, and directly about the challenges facing your officers in your department and the work that you all are doing to help them. When an officer is struggling with mental health issues, serious problems can arise in their work, in their home, in their community. And by raising awareness of the mental health needs of law enforcement officers, we can provide them with the help they need to do their jobs better and improve policing overall. At the end of the day, I believe that providing strong mental health services for law enforcement is simply our responsibility as a country. And we must ensure that we take care of those who devote their careers to the service and the sacrifice that they give as law enforcement officers. That's why I'm a supporter of the Law Enforcement Suicide Data Collection Act. This bill, which was passed into law this past June, establishes a data collection program within the FBI to compile data on suicides and attempted suicides in law enforcement at the local, state, and federal level with the intent of helping to prevent and understand law enforcement suicides. Today, this crisis takes on a particular importance as police departments, local sheriffs, and public safety officials across the country have been asked to take on so much more in light of the ongoing public health crisis. And while I'm thankful for the way our professional law enforcement officers have stepped up to the plate across the country, I have heard directly from local sheriffs and police chiefs about the challenges facing their departments here in Virginia increased calls for domestic disturbances, increased calls for mental health crises, and increased numbers of overdoses, all while officers contend with the risk of potential exposure to a deadly virus. These are challenges facing the men and women serving our communities in law enforcement and recognizing these challenges, particularly in this ongoing time of a pandemic, is incredibly important. A failure to invest in community services like mental health and social services increasingly leaves police officers in the position of stepping in as crisis counselors for those on the edge, a job they so often had not trained for. And a failure to fund these services not only means that those needing mental health services may not be able to get the help they need, it places undue stress and challenges on our local law enforcement offices and officers and strains the resources of our departments. We know that post-traumatic stress disorder among police officers is five times more prevalent than in the general population, and that this disorder impacts supporting personnel as well, which is why I've helped push forward the 911 Saves Act. This bill would reclassify 911 dispatchers as first responders, which increases their access to benefits centered on the treatment of occupational-related conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder. While these pieces of legislation are steps forward, by no means they will alone address the mental health challenges faced by law enforcement officers. That is one of the reasons why I'm so grateful to the National Law Enforcement Memorial and Museum for hosting today's event and bringing this conversation forward. Today, we've had an opportunity to reflect on this issue. We've listened to experts, to the lessons they have learned in working to enhance officer wellness programs, contribute to suicide prevention, and reduce the mental wellness stigma. 
And thank you for connecting all of us together on this critically important issue. With my personal history as someone who hears the stories of officers in our communities almost every day, this cause is personal to me. And I hope this event has an opportunity to redouble our united commitment to creating an environment that embraces mental health for our law enforcement officers. And I hope we can build on a foundation that's provided by the panelists, uh, that the panelists today have provided this afternoon. I would like to encourage all of those who are listening to be in touch with my office in the months to come. I welcome your ideas for how else we can make our country a stronger home for those who continue to serve in the law enforcement community. Thank you again for having me join you today and thank you for our service. Thank you for your service to our communities and our country. Thank you for tuning in to this Encore series of Preventing Death by Suicide, a Chief-to-Chief Leadership Wellness Discussion. Tune back in with us on May 3rd when Nick Brule, the Officer Safety and Wellness Senior Project Manager, stops by the studio to share his thoughts on the recent Safe Leo conference held at the museum. We thank you for your support, and remember, our upcoming episode releases are every Wednesday, and published exclusively on Tuesdays is our monthly Icons episode. We hope you learned something from this episode of Encore and will join us next time for another edition of Encore, where we revisit past museum programs and conversations. For more information on this program, follow the link in the episode description. A special thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of Encore, a series from the Precinct 444 Podcast Network by the National Law Enforcement Museum. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the precinct. Thank you.